0: Hey all, welcome back to the Fire and Water Cooking Podcast. I am Darren, I'm your host, and today I've got a, another couple of great guests on. I have Thea and Amando Lopatka. They are the CEO and co-CEO of Umai Dry, Dry Aging Bags. Can't wait to talk to them. I'll be right back with Thea and Amando. Smoking, grilling,
1: getting hot and hotter.
0: Hey all I want to introduce you to a company I just started working with, Fresh Jack's Organic Spices, out of Jacksonville, Florida. They're a small, family-run company that's fast-growing. I've tried a bunch of their different seasoning blends and spices, and I can tell you they are all fresh all organic. None of them contain artificial flavors or sweeteners. None of them have anti-caking agents or preservatives. They all taste like they were just made for you yesterday. Check them out, guys. They're on Amazon in the link below. They have different sample packs, different blends. Like I said, they also have the individual seasonings and spices as well. Fresh Jack's Organic Spices. Check them out, guys. I love them. Welcome back to the Fire and Water Cooking Podcast. I am Darren. I am your host, of course. And today I have another great guest. I love having all these different guests on that can explain different things to you guys. And this one is uh, a great one because I've, I've been wanting to have uh, her on for a while now. I've used the product. It is uh, Thea. Thea, uh, how do you sell your last name? I don't want to butcher it.
2: <laughs> well, Lopatka. It's pretty phonetic. Lopatka, that okay. It kind of trips people up.
0: Now, yeah. Thea Lopatka, you are the CEO and founder of Umai Dry, uh, Dry Aging Bags. So uh, tell us who you are, where you're from, and all that.
2: Okay, well, first of all, there's two of us on today. Um, we also have Amando Lopatka Komoda. And uh, as the name gives away, he's the next generation of Umai.
1: <laughs> That's me.
2: Um, Umai's been around since, well, 2007. We started as a B2B um, operation, and it was really targeting just industrial use. That was the original idea. Uh, Then in 2009, we decided that we'd put up a website um, and we happened to put some PayPal buttons on that website. And lo and behold, about 10 days later, we had our first sale. We didn't have packaging, instructions, Mm -hmm.
1: Well, I don't think it was even us. It wasn't actually our idea. It was the web developer. I wasn't here at that time. I was kind of in the background. Like it was, uh, I mean, 2007, it was kind of something that happened at the dinner table, you know, like folding up bags or helping out in the background. But I remember the the web developer said, hey, I love this product. I'd love to be able to do this. And he's like the kind of guy who does homebrewing and stuff. Right. He said, can you put some PayPal buttons up?
2: And I was like, PayPal buttons?
1: What's PayPal? (laughs) Who
2: buys stuff on PayPal, you know? (laughs) So... That's that's how we began as an e-commerce business.
0: Well, let's go back before that. How did you get started um, even into, you know, uh, where you're at now or where you were then? Were you in business? Were you uh, just kind of looking for a business opportunity? Uh, how did that all come about?
2: Nope, not at all. <laughs> you know, this is one of the interesting things is a lot of people look for the breadcrumbs that lead to somebody doing whatever you know them as doing. I actually was trained as a, as a linguist and a cultural anthropologist. I lived in several different countries and taught um, higher ed for many years. Taught, uh, after i moved back to the US, it was basically teaching a lot of um, foreign graduate students how to adapt to the American university environment and be successful. So that was my background. And I was getting kind of burned out after about 20-some years of that. And so I took a little break. Uh, Amando, at that point, wanted to go to an unusual uh, boarding school that was in Ohio, and it was based on a farm. So in order to afford his going to that school, I went as a faculty, residential faculty, and living on a farm for two years with a whole bunch of adolescents, uh, managing the animals, managing just the household, uh, first of all, it, it told me I'm, I'm really, truly done with education. <laughs> but <laughs> it, more than that, it, it got me to think a lot more about um, food. And actually, because this school was a Montessori program, it was very practical. And one of the big practical elements is that each of the different parts of the farm and the school were called microeconomies. And so it got me thinking more about, you know, business, we think of in a, like a big definition, you know, business, and you're either in business or you're not in business. And, but actually, everything we do has to do with the economy that we're generating. So I think it just kind of planted some seeds for me. And as we were wrapping up that experience at the, at the boarding school, at the farm, um, a college friend of mine contacted me. And he happened to need a Japanese interpreter, which I speak Japanese. So he wanted me to help uh, with some business negotiation that he was doing. And in the process, I realized that I really didn't want to teach anymore. And he realized that I actually had some skill in like, doing sales and you know, figuring things out. So long story short, I decided to come and uh, start a company with a couple of the different business ideas that he had. That he had not chosen to invest in or activate. And they were all long shots. And since I was just leaving teaching and I wasn't, you know, I wasn't accustomed to making a great deal of money as a teacher, taking a long shot on a, a business idea was not a difficult thing for me. So uh, so that's really how I started was there was a couple of different ideas. One of them was this weird membrane, it was kind of like post-it glue. Somebody created it by accident and they didn't really have an application for it. And one of the ideas was, you know, it could be used in medical applications. It could be used in food applications. Okay. How could it be used in food? Could it be used with vegetables? Could it be used with cheese? Could it be used with meat? And ultimately we ran some studies with the meat science department at Kansas state university and found that it actually acted as a perfect barrier for contaminants but it allowed moisture to to release and oxygen to exchange so that the meat aged almost exactly as though it were open air aging but without without any of the
0: bacteria that that you would normally get
2: (laughs) well you know if you have if you if you like to dry age commando style everything that's floating in the air is landing on top of that meat and it's a perfect medium for growth. So the umai dry creates that kind of perfect protected environment for the meat.
0: Yeah. I like getting into the backstory of people a lot. So if you've ever listened to any of my podcasts, I don't like just to go, how did umai start? I like to know how you got into it. And that's a great backstory. Um, I mean, it's uh, to me where you came from before is always a good driver. I mean, just like, you know, I talked to, we talked about Kenji earlier, you know, I, I had no idea that he was an architecture major and and really never studied and went to culinary school. You know, he just worked in restaurants when he was in college and never went to a, you know, a, a formal culinary school. And there's a lot of people out there like that, that don't really have the type of education maybe you think they did or background. They kind of started from somewhere else. And I really like getting into that because it just shows you that there's many ways your career can go and where you can land um, no matter where you start. And you coming from an education background and then now, you know, running a business that's a unique product is just, uh, you know, that's the kind of stuff I really like to get into.
2: Well, and you know, Darren, another interesting piece of that is, you know, starting from that same farm idea, Amando was a young person at that time, but he took from that experience something that led to his becoming a professional chef. And now he's bringing that expertise to the company.
0: Well, yep. you, now he's old. So yeah, look at ancient him. An Old guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's still a young person. So to <laughs> me anyway, I'm, I'm in my you know middle fifties. So uh, anybody younger than uh, 30 is young for me. So. so let's talk a little bit about that. So when you got this idea or you, Kind of, were working with your with your your friend there. Did he help you get started? You know, with the business, did he give you any kind of uh, help, or did he just say, "Okay, go ahead and run with it"? That's fine.
2: You know, it's interesting. Starting a business really is about being organized, being curious, being tenacious, and so from being a researcher, being an academic, I had all of those skills, and when you need to go out and learn about a whole new industry or a whole new world. Having the skills that I had as a cultural anthropologist is the best background. I knew how to ask questions. I knew how to adapt to different environments. So I could go into the you know, R&D labs at Cargill and Tyson and and just strike up a conversation and learn from these guys what they thought about the meat, what they thought about the bag, what they were looking for. Um, so yeah, the friend gave me an idea But the friend didn't make any significant investment or provide any business guidance per se. Um, And I've just, you know, I've taken the slow path, definitely, from 2007 till now. It's a very slow way to grow a business. Um, A lot of people would have gone, you know, big splash and, you know, dropped a bunch of money on advertising. And I felt it was very important to learn incrementally from the customers, how this bag works for them. And so I think as as we start to get some copycats now coming onto the market, the value of Umadra is that we have now 13 years of experience of supporting customers' success. You can't synthesize that.
0: Right. Yeah. You guys have done a lot of the back research and testing and, and everything that's come up in those 13 years. You've had to deal with and yeah you know, like I said I, I think I talked to you about this before I see the the dry age bag people out there and if you go to their website it's just nowhere near um as in depth as what you guys have and uh, so there's really something to be you know the original um and also to be as in depth and offer the amount of different products and and help that you guys do because you know they, it can be kind of scary and I want to start back at the beginning so um my dry bags are dry aging bags and it kind of i think you started out with just dry aging beef correct is that what it kind of started right. out as right and uh, i'm going to go ahead and share the, my screen so people can see what we're talking about here on, that are on the video so this is your website and you do offer more than just dry aged you know beef bags now i mean you, you've got the uh, charcuterie and uh mm-hmm. the salumi ones so uh you offer a lot of different products and even like seasoning blends for all that stuff. So when you were starting out and you were building this, you said most of it was um, on the commercial side, correct?
2: Yeah. The original idea was strictly for dry aging beef.
0: Commercially. Commercially.
2: Well, and our assumption was that most home users don't want to go out and buy a full sub primal steak cut, you know, a whole boneless ribeye, or a whole strip loin or a whole sirloin and take up all that space in their fridge, right? And we thought the real market would be with the, you know, commercial users. What we quickly learned though was that they don't want to hold on to that meat because that meat is money. And right. as you know, you got to hold on to that meat for, you know, ideally 35 to 45 days, right? That's a lot of money sitting on the shelves. So the big meat distributors really didn't want it. The uh, really large restaurants, you know, back in 2007, 2008, dry aging was still, you know, most people were like, what do you mean, jerky? You know, (laughs) people didn't get it, right? I mean, the the concept of dry aged beef kind of died in the 1960s with the advent of plastic. And so, unless you were living in New York or New Jersey, Or some of the very specialized restaurants, dry-aged beef had had all but become extinct.
1: Well, and also the advent of refrigeration really kind of killed off the beef industry a little bit. Or it changed the beef industry, rather, because you could have refrigerated train cars, so you could transport all this meat a little bit further. So it just kind of changed things up. I mean, coming nowadays, of course, coming from restaurants very recently... Um, the restaurant that I was working at, I was lucky. It was a high-end restaurant. Like we cooked on fire and did all the fancy kind of cool YouTube video looking things. But, uh, we had a room downstairs that was just, just dedicated to dry aging and it was the old style of dry aging. So it was very messy Mm -hmm. and lots of mold growth everywhere. It was, it had a, what was the word? Uh, the verbiage we used was it had a very unique ecosystem. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it had
0: its own ecosystem. That's what they say. And if you go, on, getting, uh, Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's, there's a, a lot of restaurants that still fun. have, or, and there's some actual companies that have big dry aging rooms. And mm-hmm. they, it's coming back. Yeah. It's coming back. And back, you know, I've talked about this with, uh, with some others before is that everything used to be dry aged back, you know, exactly 20, 30 years ago. All the beef was dry age. before box beef became you know big um yeah. they hung it i mean I, this the steer that i just bought i just had a full steer from a friend of mine he raises cattle and i bought it and had it processed i had him hang it for two weeks before he even you know looked at it you know you he, know cut the, you know everything off but you know i had both the whole you know uh carcass just hanging for two weeks before he even cut into it so um but it's hard to do that and Costco is the big you know one you can point out is they slaughter their beef within 2 days it's cut up and sent out to the stores and that's one of the reasons why they uh blade tenderize their steaks and right. if you buy any of their primals or you know subprimals you know you're going to have to throw it in your refrigerator for at least a week in the cryopack to just to wet age it because it's so green that uh, right. they don't let it hang at all because it's like you said they want it gone. You know, they see uh, meat is money. And as soon as you get it out through the, the dealers or the store's uh, doors into a customer's cart, the, the, you know, quicker they can turn over that money, but exactly. it doesn't turn out a, a better product for sure. They have prime beef. That's, you know, uh, lower end prime, but still, I mean, it's, if you don't throw that full primal in your, you know, refrigerator and let it sit there for a week it's it's not as good just well not. i mean
1: we propose you let it sit for a lot longer but in our plastic
0: yes exactly <laughs> but if, if you're not at least wet aging it for at least a week you know yeah. you know it's just it's and i never i never buy their steaks cut steaks because they blade tenderize them and the reason they do that is because they know it's not aged enough to tenderize it all it's just right it's tough you know you can get a, a filet mignon that's tough because it's you know fairly new but they'll blade tenderize it which opens up you know a whole other world of uh, pathogens could get in there and all that oh yeah mm -hmm.
2: it's basically you're eating intact hamburger you know right
0: exactly and it it, it changes the texture of the steaks and there's a whole multitude of reasons why to not you know and like i said i'll buy ground beef from costco and i'll buy the the subprimals and uh but that's it. I mean, um, but now I don't have to for at least a year, I think.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. But, uh, but you know, love- you
2: know, Darren, what people forgot, I mean, I'm old enough and maybe you're old enough that there was a different flavor to beef into the mid, mid 1960s or so. And, I I remember my dad going down to the butcher and telling them to hang it. I didn't know what it meant. He's like, hang it twenty one days, hang it, you know, hang it for a month. And and I remember he would order his beef that way. Um, but it wasn't until the first time that in, in about two thousand seven that I bought a dry aged steak because we're we're in Minnesota and there's a very good grocery store that used to sell dry aged beef. Actually, now that there's this uptick in dry-aged beef, they're not selling it anymore. It's kind of strange. But So 2007, I got a dry-aged steak, and I compared it to a, you know, a wet, quote, wet-aged steak, right? And I remembered that flavor. I mean, I didn't even know that I had a memory of beef tasting different. And eating that that piece of dry-aged steak, I was like, you know, I don't really like beef that much, but when I tasted that, that's how beef used to taste. And so the thing is our palate over the past 50 years has changed so that most of us only know beef as having that kind of vaguely metallic kind of serum taste that happens if you age under vacuum in an anaerobic environment. But if you expose it to oxygen, you know, three things start to change. Um, You got that tenderizing, of course, the enzymes are much more active, it breaks down the muscle fibers, which has to happen. And it, it happens more effectively with oxygen exposure, right? And then you've got that reduction of moisture if you're dry aging, so the beefiness just gets more intensified, right? And then the third thing is the fat starts to oxidize. And it, it lends that kind of acorn, nutty, you know, earthy taste to the meat. And then, of course, there's, you know, mold and different, you know, um, positive flavor changes that happen. But but at a minimum, you know, you've got that tenderization, that deepening of the beef flavor and then the oxidation that gives it the earthiness. And that's what beef, I think, used to taste like. And they very effectively helped us forget that with wrapping it in plastic and selling it to us that way. So sorry yeah. to get on my
0: soapbox about no, that. No, and that's that's where the box beef comes in. Instead of, you exactly. know, we we are butcher or even the grocery stores, my uncle was a butcher for a big grocery store chain up in upstate New York and um, I remember back in the even in the 70s they would get, you know, carcasses and half carcasses and process them in, in the stores. You know, um, but nowadays it's all box beef. It's they get the the primals and subprimals in a big box. Mm-hmm. And they just, they're just they just meat cutters. They just cut the steaks, you know, or the roasts into certain oh. sizes. Yeah. Uh, so that's all they do anymore. And if you go to a, a butcher, even even a regular, a guy that has a butcher shop. I mean, I went to a guy that was supposed to be a butcher for the last 20 years. And I asked him for a tri-tip. And I didn't watch what he gave me until I got home. And I unwrapped it from the butcher paper. And it was a po- picanha. It was a, you know, a top sirloin cap, you know, roast. <laughs> and he didn't even know what a tri-tip was, and he's supposed to be a butcher for 20 years, and he really wasn't. He just took it out of a box and yeah. thought, oh, that's a triangle, so that's got to be a tri-tip, but it's not. So, you know, <laughs> so there's just a lot of, you know, uneducation out there because they don't need to. They don't need to know. They exactly. Just, they don't. When it was in the box, they just cut it up in the, well, how thick do you want your steaks is it. So yep. I mean, that's all they know anymore. It's
2: paint by number. They can only paint with the colors they have in the box.
0: But the good thing is i see a lot more of that and if you go to youtube you can type in seam butchery and you watch all these younger guys that are getting back into that being able to take a half a carcass and break it down with just a a knife and and by the seams and and pull these muscle groups apart and show you you know what a chuck you know in that chuck section how many good actual really tender steaks are
1: in that i feel really spoiled right now (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, coming. I mean, coming from 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 high end restaurants. Uh, like, the, I worked with butchers. Like, I I worked I worked with this worked alongside, followed behind, kind of like watched what he was doing, not actually working with him. Um, this great butcher at my last restaurant, and he was amazing. I mean, he was a butcher through and through. And I, I remember this one story. He used to have this kind of this longer hair. And uh, he came in one day and it was all chopped off. And I'm like, what happened? You know, he's like, oh, my wife made me chop it off because I was putting beef suet, beef fat in my hair. <laughs> as like a conditioner and it was getting all over the furniture. So she gave me the option to either cut it off or just put like little covers on all the furniture. I'm like, that is the weirdest thing. Like you must really love. Everything you're doing about with with beef, but he was amazing to watch because he could. We would get in whole, like half half pigs or or half cows, and and they'd break them down right there, and we'd we break them down into the subprimals, obviously, or we just like one of the the most popular things we had were uh, flat irons. And so the flat iron steak is it's it's like the second most tender steak in a cow, I think. It's one of my favorites. Bavette is my number one favorite, but that's not a here no there. A flat iron is a tricky one because it's on the blade it's um it's kind of like two strips of meat bisected by a bunch of uh tendon and it's like it's really on the blade so you just take the entire blade off and you kind of hang it for a while and then to get it off you cut the fat off of the outside and then you have to like s- strip down one side of the tendon and take off this little maybe maybe inch thick piece of meat and then remove it from the blade and then strip off the other side and the entire process takes just for for what comes out to like four or five uh, four ounce, six ounce steaks. It takes like 20 minutes for a trained person to really go through there and, yeah. and get it out. And it's, it's just an amazing process to see that and see that up front. And now I'm hearing that that's not even a, a widespread thing. And I, I feel, well, it's starting to become more
0: because it used to be that they didn't, they just throw the whole Chuck, you know, into a, know, for ground beef you know mm-hmm. and not you know or just cut it up into chuck roast which is kind of silly but you got places now like porter road online meat uh, purveyors that do a lot of scene butchery and they pull those things out that no you can't find in a store you can't go to a grocery store and and find some of those cuts that you're talking about the hanger steak they don't know what a hanger yeah. steak is they mm-hmm. don't know what a, a bavette steak is they don't know what uh you know flat irons are you know there's specialty places that actually do seam butchery um but you know the the main you know uh places they get their their beef they don't know how to do that and the people in the stores and like a regular uh you know a grocery store they don't know how to do that stuff so <laughs> you won't see it it's your local store that's for sure but um I, I i love that i love that kind of stuff and i love watching you know people do that, but it's becoming more popular and, and people know about it now instead of, you know, and that's, it's fun for me. I just did an episode uh, last week where a couple of buddies of mine, we talked about all the different steak cuts and all that and um, where they come from and how to pull them out. But so let's get back into dry aging. So my dry is a dry aging system. It's a bag. What makes it different than traditional dry aging?
2: Well, it doesn't smell up your kitchen or your fridge, um, traditional dry aging, they, you know, you took a large piece of meat, traditionally, you'd hang like a half a side, but then you'd end up with a lot of meat that really wasn't steak quality that was dry aged and it didn't necessarily enhance it or give it, um, you couldn't justify the trim loss and the shrink from the moisture loss, right? So with my dry, you take advantage of boxed beef. You take that subprimal cut that's perfect for steak. You take it in the cryovac packaging that would normally have to be trimmed up quite a bit. You know, a lot of bits come off that to go in the hamburger bin or the stew meat bin, right? You take that whole thing and you dry age it and you control the time. So you control what meat you age, you control how long you age it, and you get to watch that whole process as it evolves into that, you know, dark mahogany brown, you know, piece of gold, and then you also get to decide how big you want those steaks, right? Mm-hmm. So, there's very little waste. There's a true improvement of the the meat experience. I mean, you're really honoring that animal that gave you that that huge piece of meat by dry aging it. And Umadra just makes it safe and easy because we are very, you know, we have become a population that's very concerned about food safety. Um, Sometimes rightfully so, sometimes overly concerned, sometimes really off the mark. But Umaidrai is just a simple way of providing that, you know, that reassurance that this is safe and easy and um, you have control over all the critical elements.
0: One of the things I really love about your website, especially, is that you have all the videos, the how-to videos, and they walk you through it, you know, in, in fine detail so that anybody can feel comfortable doing it. Um, well,
2: that's the teacher, right?
0: Yeah, that's the teacher part of it. Yeah. You can definitely tell. I've watched a lot of your videos, and that's the teacher part. But it's true, though. It makes people feel real comfortable. They can, um, they understand that you know, if they just took that same, you know, primal and stuck it in their refrigerator in their garage and just let it sit there, that it's not going to be safe because there's all sorts of other, you know, stuff in that, you know, refrigerator that they, they got drinks in there. They've got other foods and other things and other stuff floating around in there that they really don't want on that meat. So the my Dry makes it to where I can still have my beer and sodas out in that refrigerator and, and still be uh, – safe with, uh, with having that in there as well. So,
2: Yeah, yeah. You know, um, interesting anecdote, but uh, there's a restaurant in Chicago that actually holds the patent for that Himalayan salt block idea that everybody has right now, David Burks. And I worked with their chef for a couple of years doing different tests in their environment. And he told me, you know why they first installed that Himalayan salt block, wall. wall. They were storing in that same walk-in fridge, they were storing all kinds of other products. They were storing their vegetables. They were storing, um, you know, the cardboard boxes of pre-cut steaks they got from other places. And they had a flavor analysis done of the meat that was dry aging in that environment. And when the, you know, the the spectrum of flavors was pulled out of it scientifically. They found that one of the predominant flavors in the beef was actually cardboard. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Yeah. So they put the salt in there to neutralize that, that exchange of the stuff that's floating around in the air. And then of course, then they later segregated the room off and then they patented the wall. And now everybody thinks that you got to have Himalayan salt to do it. Right. But um (laughs) You know, all the salt does is it really just neutralizes the environment and uh, it doesn't cleanse it, doesn't make it sterile by any means, and it doesn't really dehumidify it. Those are all myths. But they did find that, yeah, all those flavors are just floating around in the air and you don't even know, you know, in your garage, I wouldn't be as concerned about the drinks and the cardboard and stuff. I'd be more concerned about all the stuff that's on the tires of your car. Right. <laughs> that are floating around and they're, you know, whooshing in and out of that fridge every time you open and close it. I don't think there's anything wrong with commando dry aging. I think there's definitely a place for it. And um, and I really commend the people that like doing that. My dry is just a different way to do it. It's just gives you a measure of safety. That's all.
0: Well, and you don't need special equipment, you know, you you need a a bag, you know, Um, and I've seen people I'm in some of the dry age um, Facebook groups and I see these guys buy, you know, separate beverage coolers with all kinds of fans and humidifiers and things that they put in there. And then they can buy the you know uh, dedicated steak ager type refrigerators that are made for that. Yeah. But they're seven, eight hundred thousand, twelve hundred, fifteen hundred dollars. <laughs> exactly. If, if you if you want to spend that money, that's that's more than you know. You go right ahead. But somebody exactly. like me, I'm not dry aging everything that comes in my house. There's certain things I like dry aged, and I'm, I'll do it occasionally. So my dry makes it to where somebody like me who doesn't want to have to but sp- spend all this money on special equipment and all that kind of stuff and learn about, you know, the proper humidity and, and all that <laughs> that has to be in there. I can just throw it in that bag, toss it out in my refrigerator and then wait 30 days, pull it out, cut it up
1: and be fine.
2: It's foolproof. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I do think it's funny that if you have the space and you have the financial means to have one of those refrigerators, that's great. It's just that you still have to clean it too. I mean, right. the the traditional way of traditional or commando uh, way of doing of dry aging beef is fine. It just gets really messy. And of course, there's that last bit there is the trim loss. Um, regardless of however you're going to be dry aging, you're always going to have that little piece of the pellicle or that bark on the outside. And if you do the traditional way of doing it, a lot of stuff is going to grow or something's going to grow. And more often than not, you're going to have to cut off more of the outside. You're going to be losing out on more of your steak because you have to take all that stuff off. Yeah. With the Umayadra material, the trim loss is a lot less because it's just like a, it's just a bark. I mean, it's very thin. And of course, when you're dry aging, you have a steak that goes from about this and you, you're bringing it down here. So when yeah. you're cutting off that little bit more, that's actually a lot of, bit, a lot of steak. And that's one
0: thing I don't think people realize. That's why dry aged steaks are cost more is because you know you're you're spending um, a lot of money on a bigger you know subprimal, and then you're shrinking it down. So you know yeah. you, you're you're starting with a lot more pounds when you first do it, and then you you're, you end up with a lot less because of the
1: evaporation. It's not oh, yeah, you know, oh, bad just, yeah. And there's storage fee. I mean, it's it's yeah. it takes up space. I mean, I don't know how many restaurant back ends you've been in, but kitchens are, uh, they're, they're crowded. I mean, there's not oh, a whole yeah. lot of space to swing your arms or store a steak for, for, for months on end, you know, or weeks, but, depending on how far you're going.
0: You know, I've been to, um, uh, what's the place in, in Brooklyn, New York, uh, Peter Luger. Uh, Luger what was yeah. Yeah. I went to Lugers a couple of years ago and, you know, they dry age their stuff. They've got their dry age room. I didn't get to go in it. They don't let the people come in there, but, uh, I'm sure it smells pretty bad when you go in there.
1: <laughs> you know, I think they smell pretty nice. I don't know if it's yeah. something akin to like Stockholm syndrome, but I actually like the smell of dry aging. Rooms. <laughs> you know, being stuck in one for long enough, you just like you have to learn to love it or or you might go crazy kind of thing. I don't know. I like it. It's So it's a unique. It's definitely unique. Yeah.
0: So let's go down that rabbit hole. So with dry aging, you can do it pretty much as long as you like, especially if you're, you know, doing it in your own refrigerator with my dry bag. So what is your favorite? I mean, I've tried some, I've actually done a, a brisket up to like 45 days. And I know that there's others that done over 60 days. I think Guga's has done a couple for longer. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's done some stuff. So what do you guys think the the longer you go? It's, uh, now I know with, when you're using my dry, dry bag, it makes it a little different because you're not getting that mold and, other stuff that would add to the flavor what do you guys think how how long is too long how short is too short
1: well it's a bit um it's a bit like any fine food that you're going to experience Um, if you're going to take scotch right you're not going to start off with something super peaty. you're never going to start off with a froid i mean you're just gonna be turned off of scotch just because of that i i feel you'd start off with something a little simpler, a little sweeter. And then you start working your way up um, or cheeses. You're not going to start off with the stinkiest cheese you can find mm-hmm. in the cellar. You know, the, like the, the kind of like chemical warfare ones, right. like you'd never start with that. Then you're going to work your way up to that. So with dry aging beef, it's very similar. You're going to want to start at like the three or four week kind of mark personally, um, depending on the fat content, I like things closer to like 75, 90 days. If it's got a lot of fat, I want to go a little bit longer because that, that nuttiness that the fat takes on is really the reason why I love dry aged steaks. Um, If it's going to be like a leaner cut, uh, I'll probably stay a little bit closer to the 60, 75 day mark, but that's just because I've been around it for long enough that my taste is kind of built up to that point. Um, If you start somebody off with that, yeah. i've heard i've seen people like try like 100 day dried steak as their very first experience with dried steak what a waste. and they, they they swear off it forever because they're like yeah. this is too strong like the flavor is just complete they well they have no frame of reference to start off with and when you start yeah. off so strong it's just too much
0: yeah, it's like hitting them in the head with a bat, you know, and then they go, yeah, I don't like dry age. Yeah. But then they just uh, I don't like dry age because of that one experience I had. But, yeah, definitely. Exactly, yeah.
2: Well. And, you know, some of the old timers that I've talked to, they've been interested in my drive because they say as they got older, digesting, you know, the typically open-air aged beef is harder because it has a lot more funk to it. Huh. And they'll say that it's, um, well, actually, literally what they tell me is I don't like the belch the next day you know, they would say, right? So um, for me personally, I I really prefer around 35, 40 days. I think it gives the right balance of improvement for me without taking it too far. When you get to about 60 days, there's some flavor in there that are, they're too strong for me. I don't appreciate them very much. We do have customers though, even commercial customers who go as far as a hundred days. And, but again, they need the right audience who know what they're eating. Because yeah, right. otherwise, you know, one of the one of the reports that they got back from their flavor profile test was that it tastes peanut buttery at a hundred days. And I was like, well, that doesn't sound like the beef, you know, improved if you did that. Right. I do warn people though, you know, early on we were telling people 14, <laughs> 21, 28 days. Um, because a lot of restaurants actually only age about 10 to 14 days, right? But we realize that if you put the meat in a new my bag and you invest in that experience and you only go 14 or 21 days, it's not very impressive.
0: Yeah, it's not changing so, enough. And yeah,
2: so that's why I kind of tell people, you know, and again, I've heard from chef after chef after chef, 35 to 45 is the sweet spot. You're going to please the most customers if you stick to that that range. And, and I agree. Yeah, around 35, 40 days is good for me.
0: I think, you know, 30 days is probably the minimum I would ever go because, like you said, and especially, you know, if they're buying something like from Costco where it has no age to it at all. So you're starting. Now, I just, you know, got my yeah, steer. I, I, I had my steer aged, you know, at the processor for two weeks. So it's already got two weeks. It's not te- typically, you know, or technically dry age like it would be in the MI, but it's still hanging in an age to, that uh, it has some of that. So I don't really technically, you know, it's a it's going to be a lot better for me to have it at thirty days. It's going to be more like a forty day one because it's the of the jumpstart I kind of gave it. So I definitely think that there is a just like anything, it's personal taste and you know, like you said with cheeses, you know, some people don't like you know roquefort or yeah. you know, uh, you know blue cheese, but they love you know. Uh, you know, provolone or, or something a little bit more, a uh, little bit more intense, but not quite. So it's all personal taste. And if they have a bad experience because they went and they got a 200 day dry aged steak and, you know, it could turn them off. Uh, but I see a lot of crazy things, especially nowadays with, with you get more of uh, these celebrity chefs, that are trying to make a name for themselves. I watched uh, this Netflix special um, just recently that the guy had a set it was a 200 or 300 you know, day dry aged steak. But what he did was you know, he only did it like 30 days dry aged it. And then he covered it in fat and then pretty much wet aged it <laughs> the rest of the way. What is was, your yeah. thoughts of these, you know, seeing these butter age, these yeah. silly gimmicky things that that's, I know what they are. They're, they're silly and gimmicky, but people see that stuff because they're it's
2: experiments. You know, it's fun. I think yeah. there's nothing wrong with that you know but it's not really technically dry
0: age it's not doing anything it's just like you know i said it's more of wet aging if you're if you're only dry aging it literally dry aging it for 30 days and then you're covering it in fat or butter or even putting it in a vacuum regular vacuum bag and letting it sit there it's not the same effect as if you let it just dry age so well
1: i mean the point is it can water can moisture permeate yes or no you know yes that's dry aging if it's not then it's not really dry aging
0: yeah. And it can't through butter or fat or, you know, anything like that. <laughs> hey, all, I want to welcome back. Inkbird Products as a sponsor of the Fire and Water Cooking Podcast. Inkbird makes some great thermometers, Wi-Fi, uh, Bluetooth, all that. But they also make a great instant read thermometer that I really love. It's waterproof, totally rechargeable with USB, very accurate. Everybody should have one of these in their kitchen so they can... Check the internal temperatures of their food so they don't end up overcooking. Check out the waterproof instant read thermometer below and a link to Amazon from Inkbird. Welcome back, Inkbird Products. So what's uh, other types of meat, since we're talking about that, other types of meat that could be used in the dry age bags? Can you do lamb? Can you do fish? Can you do chicken? I mean, what what is not You really... cannot
2: dry-age poultry or fish. Mm. Okay, I, I'm gonna say you can't you can't dry age them. okay you can cure and dry. That's a very different process. Um, you can definitely dry age um, lamb. Uh, it starts pretty small and so it gets smaller. you need to be aware right. of that.
0: Yeah, the shrinkage You um, always got to look at the shrinkage factor that's for sure right oh, yeah.
2: right. Probably a critical thing to bring up though is you technically you can dry age pork but it's not good to dry age standard American commodity pork. Those breeds do not do well. The meat is, again, you know, if you're curing pork, it's nice to cure because it takes up the moisture really easily. It takes up the salt rather takes up the cure um, because of how the cells are, how the meat is. When you dry age, that character is not a good thing. The porousness of the muscle is not a good thing. So what we've learned is if you want to dry age pork, you really need to seek out high pH or sorry, low pH, high pH. Anyway, basically you need to search out Duroc and Berkshire. Yeah.
0: The heritage breeds. You know, you can
2: source those two breeds. Yeah, You can dry age them, but you want to dry age them for a much, much shorter period of time than you do beef.
1: And all the kinds of heritage pork that they are out there, those are pretty common. Right. You still have
2: to butcher. seek him out. If you go into your Costco and you buy a piece of pork and you want to dry mm-hmm. age it,
0: right. you're not going
2: to be very successful. Yeah,
0: You definitely can find it online, uh, but, or you might be able to go to a high end butcher and he can order it for you. But yeah, so, you're not, you're not going into a Publix or, you know, any shopping, you know, any grocery no. store and it's not going to be on the shelf. Occasionally they might get something special in, but it's. And usually, so, like you said, it's got to be a, a big chunk. You don't, you know, cause you got to, um, that's the important thing. I
2: think that's the most important thing is people people want to dry-age, but they don't necessarily want to spend the money up front on an experiment. Well, you can't really dry-age a smaller piece of meat. So yeah. that, that's critical to know. Another thing is, okay, so definitely beef, um, definitely lamb, uh, certain kinds of pork. You can also dry-age game. You can do venison um, if you <laughs> – If you catch them before they break the animal down into small pieces, right? Right. Um, And we've had some customers that will do uh, like moose or caribou. Um, The thing to remember, though, is whatever flavor is in that meat is going to be intensified by dry aging. So you better be sure that you like that. We actually had a customer on the forum last week who was asking. uh, It's an unusual question, but it's been asked before about dry aging beef or no, sorry, bear, dry aging bear. And, uh, you know, pretty much everybody who's ever piped in on that topic has said, no, that is not a flavor you want to intensify. <laughs> no.
0: Yeah, I mean, because, you know, elk and, and deer and all that is gamey to begin with, and you're going to make it even more gamey. Exactly. Um, and bison is the same way. Even though it's uh, a red meat, it's still kind of gamey. It's still... Very lean and, and you know, so it's it's going to have a, a different flavor for sure. If you got to, like you said, you got to make sure you like that flavor because <laughs> yeah. it's going to intensify a lot more. So um,
1: I mean, it's the fat. I mean, you need that the fat in there for it to be for, for really that nutty kind of dry aged flavor. If you take something as lean as bison, I wouldn't recommend taking it. wouldn't recommend aging it very long. Right. Yeah.
2: yeah, it doesn't add a lot. The other thing to mention, Darren, is, you know, Umadra is an international company. So about 35% of our clients are outside of the U.S. And outside of the U.S., grain-finishing animals is not that common. You know, we we have the wealth in this country that we can feed the grain to the animals. Usually that's not something people do. Or they have much more big open spaces like Australia. I mean, Australian beef... Feeds all of Asia, and um, definitely there's a huge market for dry aging. But it's a very different experience to dry age grass fed beef,
1: right.
2: or as I said, you know Australia's feeding the rest of Asia, so they're sourcing all that meat frozen already. It's a very different experience to have the meat frozen once thawed, then dry aged, but it improves it all the same.
0: Well, let's get back to. Um... You know, this is one thing I see that comes up all the time in a lot of the Facebook groups and, and, and online stuff is, you know, people, why can't I dry age individual steaks? If I go buy, you know, six steaks at Costco, why can't I dry age them?
2: Well, the, the short answer is you can. You can do anything you want to do. <laughs> Absolutely. We're not the, the steak police. Right. You know? But the long answer is okay, dry aging is giving it time for the texture to improve. So the enzymes have to have the time to break down the fibers, giving it time for the moisture to reduce so that beefy flavor gets intensified. And then third, having the proper ratio, proper ratio of fat in there. So that will oxidize and develop those other flavor nuances. If you dry a just single steak and you want to go the right amount of time to get the flavor, the, the texture to actually tenderize, that thing is gonna become shoe leather. And, and most of that, that pellicle, that outside bark is inedible. If you wanna dryage it for a short period of time and just lose some of the moisture so that the flavor intensifies, that's actually what we recommend for tenderloin because you don't really wanna waste one ounce of that expensive meat and the texture doesn't get better anyway. So just do a short dryage, lose some of the moisture, intensify the flavor, don't develop a pellicle, a bark on the outside. You could definitely do that. But if you want to have that fat transform the flavor and create those really nice nuances, you can't, again, you can't leave a single steak that long. So we've done quite a bit of testing the past year because we really wanted to help people that want to try to dry age, but they don't want to invest in a whole subprimal. And, you know, basically... The only way to do it is to go to a butcher and get like a three inch steak. Well, by the time you're buying a, a three inch steak, it's been handled a lot. It's been trimmed. It's it's going to cost a lot to get. And then you want to dry age that, you know, it's it's just, it's not optimal. So yeah.
0: You're going to lose a lot just in trimming trimming off yeah. the pellicle, like you said. And I've, I've actually seen people, you know, if you just go and you buy like a prime rib roast, You know, it's not the full primal, but it's, you know, a good, you know, maybe three or four bone. I mean, if you want to try it out, that's what I tell people to do, because that way you're only spending 30, 40 bucks, you Mm -hmm. know, at the most, if it's prime or, you know, higher in choice. So that way you can do it. But, you know, try to do it with single stakes is just kind of like you said, If you only wanted to do it for a couple weeks maybe and where you're not having to trim it, I mean, you can go right ahead. Is it going to improve it that much? It's not going to be the same experience. No, you're going to have less than a hockey puck. Yeah. So it's not going to be the same experience as you would get by doing it the regular way. I just wanted to touch on it. I knew what it was, but I mean, it's just people just don't understand that you're losing moisture and it's shrinking and you're developing that extra rotted meat on the outside that you got to trim off. Now exactly. using that, the, the pellicles, you call it, the, you know, stuff you're trimming off the uh, outside, there's, there's people who will argue that it shouldn't be called a pellicle, but <laughs> because the definition of pellicle is not. Oh, it's
1: pellicle, the... bark. <laughs> it
0: bark. Now right. people, people use that. They they trim it and they'll actually grind it up into uh with some other uh, like top round or something like that to, you know, into ground beef. Sure. Is there anything wrong doing that?
2: You know, so so this is where I have to switch hats from Thea to owner of a company in the United States of America in 2020, right? Liability. And all I can say is we don't recommend the bark for human consumption, right? Obviously, people can do whatever they want, and, and they will. And um, I save all the trimmings, and I have the happiest dog in the world, you know? <laughs> but, um, yeah, unfortunately... It's not something we can suggest people do because we don't have any way of knowing what, how they've handled the meat mm-hmm. before they put it in the bag. Right. So part of that measure of safety that we like to ensure so that everybody has success is trim it. You know, the beautiful thing about Umay one of the very first thing that came out of the, the meat science studies was they were amazed at the minimal trim loss when you dry age with Umay Like Amando said, when you open air dry aged, that bark goes really deep, and it also stays kind of soft. So trimming it effectively is very difficult. If you use umai dry, you get a thin bark, and it's it's almost crispy dry. That's why we call it you know bark because it has kind of a hardness to it. And the old meat cutters that we've worked with who had uh, traditionally dry aged and uh, umai dry aged side by side, and they went to trim them they were so pleased by how easy it was to just like flick off that nice bark from the umai dry, dry aged. So ultimately it's not that much trim loss and you're going to be safe. But again, to the people who want to do everything with every ounce of that meat, I I wish you luck.
0: <laughs> so let's get into uh, the charcuterie part of it. You guys also do that. <clears throat> when did you start? promoting or, or doing that? Was that from the beginning? Or is that something you discovered that?
2: No, we introduced the um, charcuterie application in about, I'm going to say, 2012, 2013. Um, yeah, that's about the time we started doing that. and And we evolved a lot. I mean, we've kept everything on the YouTube channel. So you can see all of our early mistakes. Like we did this. I do that
0: with my YouTube channel. Oh, oh my first, gosh. We did the first video. Th- oh, it
2: was just disgusting. <laughs> right. And then we also would, we'd make charcuterie and then we'd trim it by hand with a knife. And if charcuterie isn't paper thin, it doesn't taste good. It just tastes like a mouthful of salt. You know, you don't right, get all that right. beautiful nuance yeah. of flavor. So uh, yeah, but about 2013, I think we released the, the charcuterie application. And then, Maybe a year or so later, we released the Salumi application. So a way to make, you know, genuine, slow fermented, slow dried sausage without a cellar. So we've, um, and so far, we're the only people that have, oh, did we lose you?
0: No. Nope. I'm just sharing oh, the screen okay. so people oh, can good. See, Thanks. see what we're talking about if they're on the video. Too many
2: Zoom calls these days. Some people yeah, might not so, know what
0: charcuterie is, right? So... What, yeah. What's, char, what's,
2: charcuterie. So basically <laughs> charcuterie and salumi are actually the same thing. One is French. Charcuterie means preserved meat. One is Italian. Salumi means preserved meat. What we've decided to do is charcuterie is whole muscle, two week cured, dried in my dry. And I would say 90% of the customers are doing beef. Uh, sorry, are doing pork. 'Cause charcuterie is almost all pork. You can do some beef, brazzola, you can do some duck. But um, you could actually do whatever you want, but most of the time charcuterie is pork.
1: Well, in the States, it's definitely just pork and beef for the most part. Other places in the world, especially Italy, you're gonna find all sorts of other things. You're gonna find, you know, lamb and, and boar and it's kinda piggy, I guess, but you're gonna you're gonna find all sorts venison. of other meats. Yeah, venison, of course.
2: Yeah, you go into the grocery store in Switzerland and you're going to find, you know, in the area where Americans would look for bologna, you're going to get cured venison, cured beef, cured boar. There's all yeah. kinds of options. So yeah. anyway, so for Umay dry, the charcuterie product line is um, for whole muscle cured meat that you, you cure for two weeks under vacuum or in a Ziploc bag in the fridge. Then you rinse off the cure, you put it into the Umay dry. You measure the weight, you put it in your fridge on the open wire rack, just like dry aging, and you let it go until it's lost thirty-five to forty percent of its original moisture, uh, its weight, you know. Yeah. Um, and then you either have a home slicer, or you take it to your local deli and ask them if they slice it up pretty for you. Um, and it's it's a it's a it's a really beautiful experience uh, if you've only had like American made. Charcuterie, American pancetta, or something like that—you don't really know what what all the different flavor dimensions are that happen in meat when you let it age that long. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, and I think charcuterie is a little more accessible too. That's kind of the point. Is I mean, we were talking a lot about dry aging beef, right? And the expense, where you have to go and you have to get the whole subprimal, and you have to get you know this big—I don't know—two hundred dollar piece of meat from Costco or from wherever you can find it. And you have to dedicate all that space in your refrigerator. I mean, that's a considerable amount of, of space. You have to dedicate that to your beef for an extended period of time. Whereas with charcuterie, I mean, if you do something as small as duck breast, like duck breast prosciutto is one of my favorite uh, that takes up, I don't know, maybe less than six inches by four inches. And only for a couple of weeks, less time. More time. More, okay. More time but less space.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> now now you guys offer like like with the salumi, you offer like all the cures and and the
2: yeah. So for the uh, charcuterie, we offer the instacure number two to keep it safe, and that's part of the kit. But we've also found that because of the very specific proportions of salt and curing salt that you need. It would be helpful to cust it was helpful to customers to give them pre-mixed curing salt blend. So we released that several years ago. Um, and that's that's been a really big hit. So we've already got the three percent salt, 0.25% insecure number two, slow-acting curing salt, and it's blended for five pounds. So you go get your five-pound piece of meat, you toss it in that, and then either you can um, use one of the recipes on our recipe archive or if you buy the kit it actually comes with a list of recipes you can use those different spice combinations or actually today we just released a new product
0: i saw that i got the email yeah i didn't Nothing know this was going to be a podcast. sales pitch
2: no <laughs> um but yeah umay now offers three different charcuterie spice blends so for traditional capicola which is by far the most popular charcuterie in the US. Um, either capicola or lonzino, which is made with a piece of pork loin, really easy to get a five pound piece of pork loin, or brazola, um, that's the one that's made with beef eye of round. So we now offer those three spice blends. Um, and actually the packet, although it's for five pounds, the packet has the volume measurement. So you can just take out six teaspoons for one pound of meat if you want to do that. So Mm. we've tried to make it now so that you can get the umai bags in the smaller size for charcuterie and then just get the premixed salts and the spice blend and away you go. Uh, We've done the same for salumi from the beginning, actually, where we have a kit that includes all the pieces you need. So for salumi, because it's fermented to drop the pH to get that nice tartness to the flavor and create a, um, Uh, pathogen barrier Um, that includes you need the salt the kosher salt you need the insecure number two but you also need starter culture so it's basically your, your yeast if you were baking so we include a specific meat starter culture that works at room temperature and then you also get some powdered dextrose which is just a little added sugar for the culture so you're feeding the little beasties Um, And you mix that in, and over the course of the first um, 48 to 72 hours at room temperature, that sausage is going to ferment and develop a really good flavor and become much safer. And then you put it in the fridge and, again, dry it to the target weight of 35 to 40% weight loss.
0: Yeah, because on on things like that, that's the stuff you would see like in the Italian deli hanging – uh-huh. You know, on the strings that got it. Exactly. That's
2: exactly that's where they, what they is.
0: normally ferment there, you know, when they're hanging them in their shop.
2: <laughs> well, actually the fermentation has to happen at the beginning of the process. Gotcha. And when it's hanging there for display for you, that means it's already lost all that moisture so that it has its shelf stable. You know, when you lose that 35 to 40 percent moisture, you have very low water activity and it makes the thing well technically last forever, but so it basically fossilizes <laughs> if you yeah. go too much further. Yeah.
1: So dry aging steaks is simple and straightforward in that you just dry it for a set amount of time. And then you get into the charcuterie and salumi or the sausage aspect of it. And that's where like there's a lot of science. on You have to have a precise digital scale. And you're talking about um, target uh, weights, it's you like know, baking. It's yeah, time. it's like
0: baking. You know, if you're a cook, baking and, and cooking is totally different. <laughs> oh,
1: yeah. I mean, as a cook, we refer to the the pastry chefs as they're magicians because they do some weird right. magic and then all of a sudden they have fluffy meringues and, you know, all that, that cool stuff. And um, and I'm sure they're looking at us like grass greener, I hope. No, probably <laughs> not. But, you know, it's – yeah, but the charcuterie side, I think it's, it's a lot of fun because it's um, – you get to use less product and you get to be more specific about it, right? You get to, you have to be really careful about all the little bits of pieces that you're putting into that. And you have to understand the science behind it. I guess you don't have to, but it really does help. I mean, Theo was mentioning you know, words like um, water activity, right? And why we're using dextrose, why we're using back to firm TSPX, that starter culture, why we're using insecure number two, you know, what's the difference between insecure two and one. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of science and a lot, it's a lot of fun. Um, yeah. For, personally, for, but for, for like,
0: food geeks like me and you and exactly, some of my friends, yeah, we yeah, love doing
1: that kind of stuff. Exactly. We love that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> but I mean, to be fair, Darren, we're, we've we really tried to make this more and more accessible to people. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the first, the first, First line of defense was to create these kits. And now we've created the pre mixed curing salts. So you don't have to do all the math to figure out 3% and 0.25%, you know, and and you've got the safety built in with that. Um, We added the sausage, the salumi blends, the spice blends a few years ago. We partnered with a a really great master of spice blending who has a lot of years of experience in the meat industry. And so he created these unique. Uh, sausage blends for us for dry sausage. And then, you know, he created the more recently, the three charcuterie blends. So we're trying to make it. So it's not quite a boxed cake mix, but closer. So all you have to do is go get, you know, your five pounds of meat and, and then we give you everything else to be successful.
1: Actually, uh, I have, I'm testing out those three spices right now. The Capicolas should be done I'm hoping next week, probably the week after that, uh, the Lonzino is is it's a thicker kind of thing, and the Brasola is a much bigger thing. I actually got five pound pieces so I could just do it in a massive bowl size. You don't have to do it that big, but um, those those will be done by Christmas. I, I hope. I'm sure yeah but like it was the process was a little anticlimactic I mean it was it was so straightforward it was (laughs) for the curing and that included like ruffling through the like rummaging through the the cabinet to try to find his vacuum sealer in the first place I mean I pulled the vacuum sealer out and I just tossed the salt and the spice on there and rubbed it in and stuck it in a bag and vacuum sealed it and that was two minutes I mean and that's the curing step done and then leave it alone for two weeks and then the drying part was yeah another 10 minutes, maybe. yeah.
2: Well, I think the thing that people need to bear in mind is uh, what we've seen with the company is uh, dry aging first appealed f- to people who remembered what dry aged beef was. And then people who had the money who could buy a whole subprimal. So automatically, our demographic was like 40, 50, 60, 70. But when we introduced the charcuterie, we came down into the 20s, 30s, 40s. Because people can afford to buy a piece of pork shoulder and cure it and and go with that. So okay. it, it's been really interesting to see which of the different product lines appeals to what portion of the population.
0: Well, and I think once people start getting educated, even on the on the full, you know, subprimals or what have you, they realize if they realize that, you know, yeah, I'm gonna be able to I'm it's gonna spend a lot of money by getting that but the end result is going to be so much better. You know, I'm going to spend it anyway, you know, over a certain amount of time, I might as well go ahead and, and jump on it and and do it. All right. Well, I want to thank you both for being, being on. I really appreciate it. We've gone probably longer than I thought we'd all, you know, we both thought we would, but, um, it's always great. I l- really love getting down into uh, a lot of this stuff, and I definitely want to try some of the charcuterie stuff because I haven't done that before, and that's something I want to I want to uh, play around with, especially since I got a freezer full of beef out there, and I can play around with some of that stuff. So,
2: great uh, idea.
0: I want to make sure everybody follows um, you guys on YouTube, Umai Dry. Just uh, check it out. Check out umaidry.com. You can check out all their products. You can also find them on Amazon. Um, and any other places uh, out there that you guys know of that they can buy it?
2: Yeah. On our website, if they go to where to buy umidry, there's a special page on there. So you and have local you... dealers
0: and all that too?
2: Yeah. We're, we're, for the past five years, we've been slowly building our resale partner list. Um, the vast majority of them are in other countries, but we have several in the U.S. as well. So yeah. <laughs> and if you want to get it close to home, talk to your local brewing supply shop or whatever and have them get in touch with us. That's a perfect place for Dry.
1: Yep.
0: Do, have you guys also looked at like the barbecue stores and stuff like yep. that?
2: Yep. Yep. Okay. That's another place you'll find. Usually, it takes a really, um, a really inventive owner to want to take dry on as a product. So we are in some of the specialty barbecue stores, specialty gourmet kitchen stores, um, and some brewing stores. But again, it's not like a you know, uh, You're never uh, going
0: to be on a Walmart shelf. That's
2: no, right. we're not mainstream. <laughs> right. Yeah, we're not yeah. mainstream that way.
0: Well, I don't think you want to be because then you get that liability thing. You want to make sure people know how to use your product.
2: <laughs> well, I'm not worried about the liability. I'm I'm more no, it's worried more about of, people being successful. You know, I don't,
0: I don't mean financially liable. I mean more of you want your name to be you know good out there, and you don't want people doing it wrong. And like you said before, doing it wrong without Coming to you, and you, the more people you got, you know, that have no clue what they're doing, they just try it, like yeah. you said, you know, when, yeah. when Kenji, you know,
2: and it's you know, the, the fact is, it's not shake and bake,
0: so right. exactly, it's yeah. not an oven roasting bag, and you know, people will buy it yeah. and go, this burned up, which
2: are really nice, they're really nice to have, but it's not that's not Umidra. Also, another interesting thing leading up to the holidays, I mean, I don't know when you're going to broadcast this, but uh it always makes me laugh when I have people who want instant delivery of their (laughs) wide dry purchase, because I'm like, I'm sorry, this is a product for really patient people. (laughs) And you want us to deliver this within 24 hours. I'm like, something's wrong with this picture. (laughs) So yeah, that's why we call it the original slow food. You know, there's nothing fast about dry aging and.
0: Yeah. And and that's since I deal with sous vide a lot, I I do a lot lot of people who are just getting into it. And that's one of the things that they're, the biggest thing they get, you know, have to get their mind wrapped around is that when you're cooking a steak, it's not just throwing it on the grill and it's done in five minutes. No. You know, it's, no. you're, you're in there for three or four hours sometimes. And if you're doing a bigger piece of meat or a tougher piece of meat, you're, you're cooking for, you know, two or three Couple days. days yeah. So I mean, yeah. it's not a fast, it's not fast food. It's the exact opposite. Exactly. And then
2: you got microwave. <laughs> yeah.
0: Right. It's like with dry aging. It's not like you stick it in a bag, put it in the refrigerator, and tomorrow it's a dry aged steak. That's not how it works. So.
2: Exactly. <laughs> you know.
0: Now people try to do it with uh, certain uh, additives and stuff like that, which it's not the same. I've tried it. You know, people yeah. use fish sauce and koji yeah. rice and all kinds of stuff to kind of get that flavor, but it's not the same. You know, it's it's similar. It can have umami flavor components to it because you're adding stuff to the meat but, it's but they're not... all
2: really fun aren't they
0: oh yeah they're fun to try they that's love i love that. experimenting i love doing all kinds of tests and stuff like that and that's yeah. you know geeks like me do that and i'm glad that you know you said that you know since you're out of the restaurant now you can have more fun because i was the same yeah. way when i was in a restaurant and i was my living depended on it. It was not as fun. And people always will say, oh, you should start a restaurant, or you should do this, or you should do that. It. It's like, no, it'll take all the fun out of everything. No. no. <laughs> Kill the passion. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But, uh, well, I want to thank you guys both for being on. Make sure you guys check out the umayadry.com website. And also you can check them out on YouTube. Thanks again for being on. And anything else you want to mention before we
2: No, thank you, Darren. Down? Great. This was a really fun conversation. It was yeah. a joy to talk with you.
0: And I definitely will have you on again, maybe sometime next year, and we can talk about um, some new things that Armando has put into play, you know, since he's, you know, removing the number of bags. And oh, man. Who knows? You're, you're, you're putting the pressure <laughs> on me now. Okay. I appreciate you being on. Thanks again. And thanks, everybody, for following the Fire and Water Cooking Podcast. Well, thanks again for joining us, guys. We went a little long, but it was a great conversation with Thea and Armando. Make sure you check out my dry in the links below. Uh, or dry aging pretty much anything you want to dry age and the charcuterie make sure you check out the fire and water cooking facebook group facebook page youtube channel and our fire and water cooking website and i'll see you again on the next fire and water cooking podcast